So every Friday we have a banter and the banter is guaranteed to be the highest alpha show on crypto YouTube. That's for sure. But every Friday we spend 40 minutes talking about the macro situation and only for the last 20 minutes do we actually give you guys alpha. So this week we're going to do it very, very different. We're not going to talk macro at all. We're not going to talk about interest rates at all. We're not going to talk about Powell at all. We're going to talk about alpha. And specifically what we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about how to find winners in this bear market. And why? Because in this bear market, even though there's been little movement with Bitcoin, there are some tokens that have been doing 100%, 200%, and even some tokens that have done 10x in the bear market. So that's what this show is all about. This show is about finding that alpha. Should we do it? Let's go. Get the fuck out of bed, bitch, go. baby as someone said here in the chat we are live we are live it's friday we're here to bring you alpha that's what the show is about we're not going to waste time on anything else today no macro stuff no no broad talk you know as i'm saying that i'm watching the guests in the in the waiting room and they were like shit what are we gonna, how are we going to do this so like, like they were all here prepared to talk about macro and now we're just going to drop them straight into the pond and say okay bring us the alpha so that's what the show is about it's a friday it's a banter friday it's our normal banter friday remember that our banter fridays are brought to you by the best crypto VPN in the world. And that, of course, is NordVPN. And I keep saying to you guys, you've made it this far in the bear market. What you need to do now is you need to protect your crypto. And you need to protect yourselves. How you do that is you make sure that you maintain your privacy. And how you maintain your privacy is you get a VPN. A VPN conceals your IP address, which makes it much harder for hackers to actually hack you. It also doesn't reveal to DeFi protocols, exchanges, and other uh, crypto-related elements who, where you are, who your computer is, etc. So you can actually browse completely anonymously. Um, you can get a NordVPN for under $3 a month. Uh, last week, we had a record number of you actually getting a VPN. So well done to those of you who actually got uh, a VPN last week. But do it because not only are you protecting yourself, but you're also supporting NordVPN who are supporting the crypto space. And as I say, this is the, the, crypto, the VPN for crypto people. All right. So that is that. By the way, by the way. By the way, by the way, by the way, I just want to say that I'm back in the game in the trading competition. Uh, I am 34th with 66.54. So I'm, I'm moving. I'm going to get to top 20 today. My aim by the end of the day is to be at top 20. If you want to join the trading competition, you know what to do. There's a link under here. Sign up with the Crypto Banter referral link. Sign up with Bybit or with BitGet. Uh, and then join us in the trading competition. You can win over $155,000. All right, that is it for the sponsors. Now let's let us bring on the guests. We've got Jordy. You all know Jordy. Uh, we've got Hasib. You all know Hasib because they've been here before. They're part of the family. And now we've got a new addition to the show. His name is Sam Purifoy. He is from Sam. Remind me, Hive, Hive Interactive. Is that what it's, is that what it's called? Yeah, Hive Mind. I'm the head of Interactive over at Hive Mind. 
head of interactive at HiveMind. Amazing. Guys, so welcome back. Welcome back to the show. I know that you are usually used to coming here and talking about macro, and we spend the first 40 minutes just, you know, like waffling, and then, like, you know, the, the audience sits there and waits for the alpha. Today, we're going to start and go directly to the alpha. Um, and I think I want to start off with Aptos. And the reason I want to start off with Aptos is because we've had the launch of Aptos. And if you look at Aptos, currently the fully diluted market capitalization of Aptos is $8 billion. So it's trading at $8.16. Um, I think the last funding round was at about $2 billion. If I'm not mistaken, the last VC funding round was at about $2 billion. Um, my question is how Aptos has changed the layer one space. So before Aptos, we had Ethereum, we have, well, Cardano. Don't comment about Cardano yet. We have Solana, uh, we have layer twos. And now we've got this new dynamic of Aptos. I see, I know you guys invested in Aptos and you wrote a tweet. You said you were super bullish on Aptos. Uh, you mm -hmm. broke Aptos. Maybe just, let's start off by just, what is Aptos and what's the investment thesis and why is everyone so excited about this layer one blockchain? So to give it an $8 billion valuation on the day that it launches. Yeah, so Aptos, so Aptos is a team that spun out of Diem, which was the kind of rebrand of Libra. Um, and so you remember, you know, Libra was kind of the talk of the town back in, what was it, 2018 when Libra was first announced. And Libra kind of got stuck in basically, you know, it, it kind of got, got, got stuck without actually ever being birthed into the world. Uh, but the tech that they built, which was built by you know an enormous amount of R&D effort at Facebook, like over $100 million they invested into making this one of the most robust blockchain tech stacks in existence, um, we basically never went anywhere. And so there were two teams that basically spun out of Diem to try to build out, take this tech that they built inside of Facebook with sort of Facebook quality engineering um, and make it into a public blockchain. The first one was Aptos and the second one was, uh, was Sui. Uh, which was built by this company called Nissan Labs. So Aptos was the first to come to market, and Aptos basically took a lot of the core DM code base and then improved it to make it really work in kind of an open, non-permissioned setting, uh, but also adding a bunch of innovations that have taken place since the original, uh, the, you know, the original Libra white paper. Um, so that's Aptos. It's built by this very crypto-native, very experienced team, uh, a lot of which is ex-Facebook, but some of which is also just kind of ex-crypto-native folks. Um, and a large part of the reason why people are so excited is that they're, they're really tackling the blockchain scalability problem in a, in a very different way than almost anybody else's. Um, there's, there's a few core innovations that are maybe a little bit esoteric, a lot of stuff around parallelizing compute in a way that most of the blockchains are kind of unable to do. And, they're, and they have sort of what you might call a scheduler that basically tries to be intelligent about when it can parallelize things uh, without having a developer needing to specify exactly what they want to parallelize and, and what they don't. Um, so... The, the scalability improvements you can get from an architecture like what uh, Aptos have are, are really compelling. Um, but, of course, it's super early, right? They also have their own uh, smart contract programming language called Move. Both Aptos and Sui use Move. Move is very different than pretty much any other smart contract programming language, but it's kind of designed from the ground up to be usable for smart contracts, usable for the transfer of money and assets. Um, and so it comes with it a lot of security guarantees, that you don't get from pretty much any other smart contract programming language, which should make it a lot easier to create safe and reliable applications compared to Solidity or Rust or something that's really not designed with the kind of mistakes that people make when they're writing smart contracts uh, that we've learned over the years of, of, of building this stuff. 
So, so now anytime you're taking a bet on a new ecosystem, you're taking a big risk because new ecosystems are hard to get off the ground. Most of them fail. So any VC who's investing in Aptos, they go in with the understanding that, look, there's a good chance that this thing does not succeed. But scalability, like building the most scalable blockchain is the biggest prize in crypto. It is the biggest game to be playing. And if they succeed, the outcome can be really massive. Okay, so what does this do to the um, other blockchains, specifically uh, Solana, Nier, which are, let, let's call them the, the tier one, if we call Ethereum the tier one, which is you know, the, the mother of all blockchains. Uh, and then you've got all the other ones which, are, which were originally touted as Ethereum killers. Now they're not really Ethereum killers, but they're Ethereum complementers. Um, so talking about Solana, I'm talking about uh, Nier, I'm talking about Cardano, I'm talking about all of those. Now you've got a new kid on the block and you've got another new kid on the block, which is about to launch, which is sweet. Where do you see, has your thesis around Nier and Solana changed because of the launch of Aptos? So I know you were super no. bullish and you've, and, and you've invested, you, you were an investor in Nier. I think you're an investor in Solana, am I That's right? right. So, uh, not, not directly, no. No. So now that you've got Aptos, how does that change the landscape for layer ones? How does that change your investment thesis, if it changes your investment thesis at all? Yeah, so to be clear, Aptos is a new entrant into the race to be the dominant L1. And Aptos, they're super new, right? And so a lot of people are indexing based on, okay, the, you know, their first week coming out, they had some pretty crappy messaging, they, it was, you know, they fell very flat-footed on the community. Um, and they're like, oh, okay, Aptos is dead. Aptos is not dead. Like this, every single blockchain, when they launch, they have some kind of oopsie-daisy and they end up falling flat on their face and nobody remembers it with the, the kind of the sweep of history. You know, Avalanche, when Avalanche first launched, they, they fell on their face, the blockchain went down. Nobody, nobody cares. Nobody, nobody even remembers that. When Solana first launched, nobody was even watching when Solana first launched, right? They, was, they, were, they were kind of a no-name blockchain. It just wasn't a big deal. The reason why there's so much um, attention on, the, okay, the first week of Aptos looked kind of bad is because there's nothing else going on in crypto right now. There's nothing else to talk about other than, you know, the one narrative, which is, oh, Aptos is launching. But let's put that aside. Let's, let's, put that the first week. let's forget so, about the first week. How does it totally change cool. the landscape? The way, that I would, the way that I would describe that landscape is that now you've got four entrants in the race. You've got basically four teams, okay? Team number one is EVM. That's Ethereum and all of its buddies. It's, it's BNB chain, it's, it's Polygon, et cetera. Uh, team number two is Solana, basically Solana and their kind of Rust and, and their virtual machine. Uh, that's team two. Team three is going to be EWASM. Uh, and that, uh, sorry, not, uh, yeah, EWASM uh, or WASM generally, which basically means that you can write any programming language, even you know, regular programming languages that uh, you know, normal programmers might use like, like JavaScript uh, or, or you know, pretty much anything that can compile to WASM. That's near, that's uh, Polkadot is also trying to go down that road. Um, and then there's Move. And Move is now this new distinct ecosystem uh, that is going to be competing with all these other ecosystems. So the question is, is Move and is the community and the momentum around Move going to be able to take hold or not? In the history of programming languages, generally speaking, programming languages are really sticky. They are surprisingly sticky, right? We've been using, we've been, you know, x86, which is the, uh, the, the assembly uh, programming language that's basically used by most modern processors. It's been around for a very, very long time. It is this old, you know, janky thing that's just been added onto more and more and more for, for decades at this point. Um, and it just doesn't die. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, if you think of, uh, you know, old languages like, like COBOL, COBOL did die. COBOL's dead. We don't use COBOL anymore. Now we use things like 
Python or Rust or you know whatever, but then you look at something like C, C has been around forever and it's still used in, in some very, very low-level applications. So the answer is that sometimes these things can totally fundamentally change, sometimes they don't. The real question is, are the changes that Aptos has made, are they significant enough and important enough and do they make things that much better that enough people will be willing to migrate over to Aptos? Or secondly, does it not need people to migrate but instead, it brings in so many people from Web2, which is a lot of the Aptos stories that they have, you know, because they're XDM, because they have so much credibility outside of, of crypto, right? When people outside of crypto look at this stuff, they're just like, oh, wow, Facebook is like building a blockchain uh, or the ex-Facebook team. Like this is now really world-class engineering. Um, a lot of those companies are super interested in Aptos because of that legitimacy and being able to, to, to kind of bridge the gap between Web2 and Web3. Sorry, you know, I, I know a lot less about Aptos, but I can understand kind of like the layer one blockchain, blockchain ecosystem overall. Um, and I mean, it's very interesting how I see broke it down in terms, of, in terms of programming languages. And obviously, like when you look at Rust, you would probably include some other chains like uh, Cosmos and some other interesting things going on. But uh, more broadly speaking, you know, there, there's community. There's developers, you know, who are building apps and kind of builders and founders. And then you're going to have like the, te the tech, which is kind of what Hazib focused on. And rightfully so, because sometimes, you know, we forget about the tech. And uh, I guess I fully agree that the big question is, is this like a step up in tech where you can have new use cases? Because if it's just a bit faster and then all we're doing is just NFTs and DeFi, I don't think we need another blockchain. If it's incredibly faster, allows a lot more block time, a lot more things to happen. And then suddenly we start having like completely new use cases, just like, you know, when the internet got faster, we started having Netflix and have, started having streaming, then that's a huge deal. So it, it's kind of a bet on how much of a step change is the tech. Because when you look at the other two things, you know, you look at developers uh, and builders, they have a lot of options right now. They have, there's a lot of like legacy options with a much larger community that they can already tap into. And then there's a lot of chains that have a lot of incentives to throw at them. Um, so, you know, that's pretty competitive. And then, you know, you have a new programming language, which while it does look quite interesting, how many people want to learn a new language when they already know Rust or already know something else? So we'll have so to see. Yeah. I think the good thing is when you say that, um, first of all, I mean, I've, I did a deep dive into Aptos. The first thing is I do think that they solve this I don't know what the right English word is, parallelism, parallel trans, I don't know what the right word is, but it's around parallel transactions. I do think they solve parallel transactions very, very, very smartly. The second thing is that the language itself is very consumer centric. I don't know how, to, how, how else to say it, but it's, they're trying to solve things like, like um, private key recovery, for example. That's like one thing that, 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 can, that, that, that is being solved. Um, what I find though is, what I find though is that for me, every successful chain has either a charismatic leader or a certain culture, which causes religion. Uh, Hasib, I know you, you always use the religion versus technology, mm -hmm. which causes religion. And then you've got religion and you've got uh, uh, technology. But when I look at Aptos, and I think that on the religion scale, when it comes to crypto, they score a zero. Like, there's no religion. There's no, I don't see any Aptos fans. They don't have an Aptos community. They may appeal very much to the Aptos, to the developer community, specifically in Silicon Valley, because, you know, they all, well, some of them are ex-Facebook. They may appeal and maybe they're going to start their, their culture there. But then I ask myself a question, like, 
how how good are these Silicon Valley developers that are at Facebook? Like, I know, I know, ten years ago the Facebook developers yeah. were the best, but like, really, are Facebook developers really that good? The way I see Facebook, <laughs> the way I see Facebook developers today, and I'm going to be honest, um, you know, I think this this week showed uh, 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 showed Mark Zuckerberg with his pants down, and the reason why is because. They burned through $8 billion of free cash flow, eight out of $10 billion of free cash flow that they had. They burned 80% of their free cash flow. They're building it on a metaverse. Most of it, they're burning on a metaverse product. The metaverse product that they've built, they've got nothing to show for. Then you go back and you say, hold on a second. Let's look at Facebook's track record of actually building shit. They built Facebook. And ever since they built Facebook, they haven't been able to build a single other product with any kind of traction. The only other two products that they have built were Instagram and WhatsApp, and both of them were actually bought. And I'm not taking away. I'm saying, for me, Facebook engineers are not builders. The culture's wrong. They're too woke. They're too relaxed. There's no urgency. They've got too much budget. When I take that and I compare it to normal engineers who can make magic on a shoestring budget, I'm not a big fan. Got to be honest, I'm not a big fan of Facebook engineers. And you know, I say that, but my brother was a Facebook engineer. So I mean, I love my brother dearly, but I, I don't believe in Facebook engineers. Sam, would love to hear your views. All right. Yeah. I mean, this, uh, this is a complex set of questions. Let me, let me touch on two different points here. I want to first touch on the layer one bit because Hasib, I actually have a set of questions here that I think you might have some interesting responses to. So I think in general, when we chat about layer ones and their tech, it's undeniable, right? These are the most important concepts and technologies within blockchain. Everything else we build by definition is on top of these, right? But then when you think about Aptos or any of these others, it doesn't even have to be Aptos specific, but each one has a token and valuing that token, I think is where this problem becomes extremely complicated, right? Because layer ones almost have a fundamental utility misalignment with users, right? So most layer ones are looking to drive their fees down to zero. And that means that the cash flow to the chain effectively becomes zero. And so you end up, having to indirectly value these chains in these cases where you have to consider things like, okay, how much of the chain do I need to own to take consensus, to potentially maliciously change a transaction, to take the value at risk on the chain, right? But undeniably at the same time, each one of these chains has an overwhelming number of users and eyeballs, right? That are looking at it. And so those are obviously marketing dollars that could be capitalized at some point. And so net, you know, at the end of the day, what value actually ends up directly supporting, not the chain entity itself, because I think the tech is undeniable, but the tokens, you know, that kind of sit here, what actually ends up supporting those? And I'm, I'm really curious to hear, you know, each one of your thoughts here on how that sits. So you're, you're absolutely right. Like if you look at Solana today, Solana, almost negligible fees on Solana. Same thing with Polygon, right? Clearly they're very highly adopted chains, um, but they make almost no money in fees. Now you could look at that and say, okay, well, this is just, this is just bullshit. Like basically these things are not worth anything and the, the market is just getting high on its own supply and thinking that these things are, are, are useful assets. Um, but I think it, it understands, like, look, if you look at the history of Ethereum, you saw the exact same thing, is that Ethereum made almost nothing in fees for a very, very long time until it got to basically total saturation in terms of adoption. And then the monetization went crazy, right? Basically now Ethereum is literally net deflationary from how much fees and also how much MEV it ends up extracting from its chain. Right. And but so, at the, oh, sorry, I don't want to interrupt you. Oh, but ahead, but at ahead. the end of the no, day, no, doesn't, 
doesn't that end up driving more of these competitors to come on, right? Because the fact that ETH essentially got to this point where we're having to pay 10, 20, 30, $100 per transaction, that caused a series of layer ones, you know, these alternatives to pop up. So is that not the same cycle that we'll repeat? Like if Solana, well, it, for example, yeah, it gets to the end where we're paying $100 per transaction, they take fees, then there'll be a new Solana, right? Where you don't have to pay fees again, over and over. 100% true, 100% true. But so the, the way I like to analogize this is, so I, I wrote a piece uh, uh, a little while back, earlier this year, called uh, Blockchains Are Cities. And the way that I like to think about this analogy is like, look, it, when, when you basically have a city that becomes very expensive, really what that means is that a lot of people want to use it. There's an enormous amount of demand for that city, right? Now, when a city gets really expensive and it gets so crazily congested and crowded, you might think like, oh no, th does that mean that the city is going to lose its place because it's so expensive that people are going to start a new city? It's like, no, 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 that's not, the, the, cities are not zero sum in that way. Right. So if, if you have New York City and it gets really expensive and crowded and then somebody's like, cool, let's go start Jersey City. Um, it's like, no, no, no. Actually, in some ways, one that somewhat consolidates me, like to have a Jersey City makes New York more New York. Um, but then second, they don't cannibalize each other so long as the net demand increases. Right. If what you saw was that nobody used Ethereum anymore and everybody migrated en masse to the next chain. Well, then, of course, that next chain would get crowded and the next chain would get expensive. So that strategy doesn't work. It only works when basically you have the high value use cases staying on the first chain or staying within the first city. And then the low value use cases migrate to another city until those become big enough to saturate the next city down. And then the next city finds another city to take on its low value transactions, right? And this is how every city in the world ends up functioning is that you've got a downtown that's super expensive that where a lot of value ends up accruing and the best businesses are. And they end up expanding kind of radially outwards to less and less valuable use cases that can basically be more liberal with their use of, you know, in, in, in the real world land and in our world, block space. Yeah, I, I like that framing and it, barring the, you know, the physical and digital limitations of having to build in one place versus not. Um, I, I am curious how in the end state, right, what does it look like then uh, if the objective is for these chains to take fees on volume? You know, how do you how do you kind of build a valuation model around something like that driving towards that direction? I mean, I, look, I, I'm not a I'm not a trader, so I don't sit around trying to come up with valuation models for maybe fees, maybe Ron can tell us. Yeah, I mean, it's super it's super interesting because because as you say, we want the cheapest blockchains in the world, but the cheapest blockchains in the world are the one that are eventually going to yield the least benefit to their token holders. We saw that with Avalanche when they launched their subchains, and in the subchains they allowed the transaction fees to be paid in the in the token of the subchain. And that knocked the avalanche price because they said, well, you know, what, what value is, is, is the main chain getting out of this? So, so we did see it. I don't want to stay on this too long. Can, I, can, I, can I chime in in just a couple of minutes? Yeah. I have like a few yeah. interesting points because it is something I've been thinking about quite a lot like over the last few months. And, uh, you know, when it comes to layer one tokens and like how those specifically accrue value, I think there's like two general ways to look at it. One is kind of what you guys are discussing, which is sort of like a business. How much revenue does it take, which is, you know, obviously like uh, gas fees and, if it's really low gas fees and you're hoping it's, you know, Solana's thing, it's going to be like the NASDAQ and it's going to have thousands of transactions a second and all those cents will add up to a lot. And that's, that's totally fine. The other way is like something we've already seen with Ethereum, which is more of a cultural value. If you start having assets that are priced in a certain coin, like ETH, like NFTs, you know, you have CryptoPunks, you have something that is like valued by community. You don't actually even need fees. It's sort of like you have a scarce asset and that's the currency in which you can buy like these flex items or, cultural items or whatever you want to call them, like important items that are priced in that currency. And that has like a huge importance. I mean, not to get into macro, but obviously like, you know, there's a lot of discussion right now about oil. 
oil being like, you know, such an important commodity. And like they're talking about, is it priced in dollars? Is it priced in rubles? Is it priced in gold? It actually matters a lot what these things are priced in. The currency gets value. And so similarly, like with Ethereum, I think it's already proven a use case where if you can build items, NFTs or something in that ecosystem, it can it can accrue value to the layer one token. And that's why like community ends up becoming even more important. It's almost like you're saying that everything in the world should actually be priced in gallons of oil as opposed to be priced in, in, in US dollars. Because I mean, that's that's the gas that allows us to continue to make more of these valuable resources, which is, I think, I, mean, uh, I, I put it a slightly different way. I think I, I agree with your point, Jordan. The, the, the way that I put it is that every layer one has sort of, it, it, there's like a, a sum of parts analysis to every layer one. And there are three parts to every layer one. Part number one is a layer one asset as a commodity which is, okay, this is like the oil to pay smart contracts on this particular language, right? So that's the fee revenue or the fee demand. Um, the second is as the equity of that blockchain, right? And what, what do I mean by the equity? It's like, well, if the blockchain is burning, uh, which a lot of blockchains do, they sort of burn and then return the capital, so almost like paying dividends to uh, token holders, right? And so what is, the, what is the total burn of the total fees that are paid into that blockchain? Um, Ethereum is now net deflationary. And so you can see there's actually real on-chain sort of you know, equity uh, uh, value that's being delivered back to token holders. But then the third is, as you said, the monetary value, the monetary premium that's assigned to that uh, token. And that premium comes from uh, the fact that people use it as money on the chain. So not just they're paying fees in it, but they're denominating NFTs in it. They're using it to pay entrance fees or, or people are using it exogenously as money. And that gives you the MV equals PQ analysis. So, okay, you, you know, what are the total goods that are sold? What's the velocity? And that gives you that third component of a layer one. Now, the, a layer one is not just one of these things. It's all three of them. And we don't mm -hmm. know how much exactly it is of each one of them, but different layer ones have each, they have, they have different amounts of each of those components. And the more that one of them really grows and becomes really powerful and, and, um, and salient, the more that's going to drive value to the layer one. But the reality is that we, we don't really have a model today of how you balance those three elements of a blockchain, right? Like Ethereum is very, very much all three. Solana is not, not really so much money today. Oh, yeah, okay, some NFTs are dominated in Sol, but in absolute terms, it's like, it's not huge. Um, and of course, for even farther down L1s, there's almost no fees. There's almost no, um, you know, there's almost no monetary usage. So it's a bet that eventually one of these three elements of the layer one is going to become big and going to make it valuable. Mm. Okay, let's talk, so let's just finalize around layer ones. Um, and I think I'm going to start with you because I know you're an investor in multiple layer ones. Uh, today, if I were to give you $10,000 and I were to say to you, take a bet on layer ones today with the layer ones that are in the market, how would you allocate the $10,000? You know me, I'm a no bullshit kind of guy. It's like, you know, you can talk, we can waffle a bit and then I'm going to bring it down to saying, okay, tell me what I need to do. I need the action. You got $10,000 today. Your objective is to make as much money as possible in the next five years. How are you allocating your money? Jordi and Sam, the question's coming to both of you. So you can, you know, your, your brains can start, <laughs> the, the wheels, the cogs can start to turn. Where would you tough put question. the money? Right? Yeah, that, it, is, it, is, it is a tough question. I mean, the, the, the default answer is what I have done, which is basically that I'm in uh, four L1s, which is Ether uh, in Avalanche, in near and in Aptos. So that, that's the real answer because it's where my money actually is. And what percentage? Uh, You're not going to get away with this. <laughs> yeah, 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 all right, all right. I mean, de facto, um, de facto, I have, I, we own a lot more near than we own of anything else. Um, 
I, I don't, I, to be honest, I don't know. I don't, I don't have a great answer of how I think of each of these things on a relative basis. I'd have to, I'd have to think more deeply about it. Why, um, why do you earn a lot more near than anything else? Is it because you invested a lot more and you made a lot more money? Is it because you, you believe that their, their tech is just greater than all the other layer one tech? Uh, it, it's the former. It's the former. It's that, it's that basically when we invest into an asset, we hold it for a very long time because we believe that this stuff takes a long time to build and a long time to come to fruition. So it's, okay. it's more just a function of the fact that we haven't sold anything. Okay. Jordi, your $10,000, where are you going to put it? Um, yeah. So if it has to be public markets, because you know, like there's some interesting stuff going on in private markets, but right now, public markets, half in uh, staked ETH, half in staked Atom. Wow. Okay. Let me, tell me why you would put your money into staked Atom. Do you believe in the, was it, is it Cosmos V2 no. now? Is, it, is that what you call it now? Or what is the... Atom V2. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of things with Atom token. One, you know, you get airdrops of like new new app chains and new new projects. Just give airdrops to to uh, Atom holders, and there's a lot of you know smart people building cool stuff. And you know, just just wait and see what some some of these airdrops might end up being pretty valuable. And, and I think, I think one step, yeah, I just want to make sure that I understand this correctly. So if you hold the Atom token, you are getting airdrops which are being built on the Cosmos chain, not people using the Cosmos SDK, right? I think, you know, it, everybody can decide if they want to give airdrops or not. But uh, mm. in, in general, like it, the whole concept of Atom is that, you know, we're all, we're all separate, but we're, all, we're also all together. You know, there, there's mm. kind of like this inter-blockchain inter kind of uh, community. So the ethos is very much about, you know, you build something here and we're all communicating and we're airdropping. And, and so I, I think, uh, you know, it's most <laughs> getting, getting onto Binance is quite interesting. Like that's, that's like a first step for, uh, I mean, DYDX of course is, is going to follow uh, as, a, as another token that's going to be listed on centralized exchanges that is going to be in that ecosystem. Um, I'm, I'm very bullish on DYDX, super bullish on DYDX. So you're going 50, 50 Cosmos, DYDX, uh, Cosmos and Adam. Yes. Sorry, not Cosmos name, ETH and Cosmos. <laughs> yes, even Cosmos. Yes. Okay. Uh, Sam, what are you doing? Well, you got $10,000. dollars you got to make as much money for your, your baby. Um, yeah, your if, I'm, if, I'm, if I'm spinning up a college fund, it's probably going to be midway between the other two years. So I think I'd probably do half into staked ETH as well. But then the remaining 50% would be split amongst the ETH competitors, right? So that's everything from Apto, Sui, Algorand, Near, every single one that you can list. I would divide the 50% equally. Anyone here bullish on Algorand? Diversification. Anyone here really bullish on Algorand? Is there a real bullish case on Algorand? I did see their transactions this week or this month have shot through the roof. They've got a FIFA partnership. They've got, uh, you know, they've got 800,000 accounts. Is that what I read? Um, crazy. I don't have the stats on me. I, I can get them. But um, is anyone really bullish on, on, on Algorand here? Algorand is a, it's kind of a sleeper hit, in my opinion. So I, I think it's going to take it some time to continue booting up. But Algorand's tech has been solid and their community has been solid. They haven't had any chain issues uh, ever, as far as I can tell. Um, and at this point, I think that they've... Nothing's been happening on the chain. And so it's so very hard to be clear. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's it's hard to say, you know, if there's not 100,000 transactions per second going on. Uh, but no, their chain speeds have been increasing. We are actually going to deploy a game over on Algorand uh, in about three or four months. So... Okay, super interesting. All right, I want to talk a little bit about Ethereum. Um, and specifically, I want to talk about whether this is a good thing or a bad thing. So specifically, what I want to talk about is this thing over here, which shows the number of blocks on Ethereum which are OFAC compliant. 
and the number of validators and blocks which are non-OFAC compliant. So uh, I think that gives you a good representation. The red is OFAC compliant. The green is non-OFAC compliant. Over 50% of them are OFAC compliant. So effectively, what we can now say is that Ethereum is kind of captured by governments and states because you know no block that is against OFAC regulations can get passed in Ethereum. Question is, is no, this a no, good thing? No, 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 hold on. No, 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 no that no, is no. bullshit. That is okay. bullshit. Correct me. That, no, that's not how it works. So if you are in an OFAC compliant block, right, and you are from a sanctioned address, not a yeah. sanctioned country, because Ethereum can't freaking tell what country you're from. Yes. So if you are from an OFAC sanctioned address, meaning like you're you know, North Korea or the Lazarus Group or whatever, then all you have to do is wait a couple blocks until the next block that's mined or the next block that's validated is from one of those non-OFAC sanctioned or one of those non-OFAC compliant validators. That's it. So instead of waiting 14 seconds, you're waiting 30 seconds or 45 seconds. That's what okay. happens if you are an OFAC sanctioned address. Okay, so the question uh, is, is this a good thing or a bad thing for Ethereum? Is this, a, is this a feature or a bug that the majority of the block validators are OFAC compliant today? Is it a feature or is it a bug? Why do I ask if it's a, fe a feature or a bug? Because if it's a feature to say, you know, institutions can say, look, we want to invest in this thing because it's OFAC compliant, because you're earning an amazing staking yield. I think the staking yield I checked earlier was around between five and six percent. Um, uh, the other the other side of the coin is to say, well, you know, this is blockchain. Blockchain is supposed to be everyone. Every, every transaction gets approved. No government intervention. Now we've got OFAC kind of stepping in here and, you know, deciding, you know, who can validate which blocks feature or bug. Yeah, I think it's a, it, yeah. <laughs> it's a bug. Yeah, it's a bug. So you know what's what's really happening is uh, validators are just incentivized by rewards, by like the highest APY they can get, and being able to get MEV is something that is kind of being packaged up into MEV boost, and MEV boost is itself you know being very careful and being OFAC compliant. There are other people who are able to uh, take their tech. You know, it's they're not a for-profit organization, so they've kind of put it out there. Sorry, it's just turned green in here. I don't know what's going on. Um, I've been and, to that uh, I'm about to start playing very loud music. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, it, no, nobody needs to use MEV Boost. Uh, nobody needs to use kind of like the current um, OFAC compliant. It's just because it's the easiest way to get a higher yield. I think over time, as this becomes a problem, as, as he said, as he said, nothing's actually getting censored. Uh, if it starts to become a larger problem, there'll be more resources going towards creating an alternative that will be non-OFAC compliant. And then especially like validators outside the US, and, you know, people who want to maximize their yield will just use that. So I think it's just a bug that um, is not necessarily like indicative of, of like the long-term future. Sam, what do you well, think? So, okay. Oh, I see. Well, hold on. Let me, let, me, let me add a quick correction here. So MEV Boost itself. So what is MEV Boost? MEV Boost is this piece of software that a validator runs to be able to basically get a block proposal from somebody who's going to be packaging up MEV and doing a Flashbot style auction. Flashbots is like this off-chain auction that basically allows people to auction MEV. Um, and it's where a lot of the marginal revenue today in Ethereum 2.0 is coming from. It's coming from these MEV extractors who then give the money back to the, to the validator. So, the re so, so MEV Boost itself is actually neutral. MEV Boost itself does not impose any OFAC restrictions. The reason why so many blocks are uh, you know obeying OFAC restrictions is because the biggest block builder today is Flashbots. It's Flashbots' own relay, and Flashbots, their software is OFAC compliant. 
Um, and the reason why so many of those blocks are using Flashbots Relay is because Flashbots is the best. They are offering the most profitable blocks to validators. They're the best at kind of you know getting the searchers and doing all the you know fancy stuff to make it so that they're extracting the maximal value from each block. And the reality is that the validators don't care. Validators don't give a crap whether it's OFAC compliant or not. They just want to make the most money. And so the most money is coming from a builder that is OFAC compliant. So that's why so many blocks are OFAC compliant. It's not because the validators themselves are like, I will only use OFAC compliant blocks. Today, the validators don't care. The validators are just saying, I'll just take the most profitable thing. So this has caused a big stir in the Flashbots, well, in the Ethereum community, uh, and a lot of ire towards Flashbots. And Flashbots uh, announced they're going to do this thing called Suave, where basically they're going to open source all of their own infra to make it so that other block builders can be more competitive with them. Because right now, they're almost like a pseudo-monopoly. They're, they, they're not enforcing this monopoly. They're just better than everyone else. And so they're, they're kind of in an open competition, but they're just creaming all the other competitors. So they're trying to make it so that their overall share of block production goes down. Um, and, and look, I think it'll eventually happen just because, you know, there's, there's only so long you can hold on to an advantage like that. Um, but block building is an open process. Anybody can be a block builder. So if you're better than Flashbots and you're not OFAC compliant, which like in principle, if you're not OFAC compliant, you should be able to find edges that Flashbots is not finding because you're not, you're, you're following one less rule than they are. Um, then yeah, then more blocks will be non-OFAC compliant, but it's a, it's an open market. So there's no, there's nothing intrinsic about any of this process that makes it OFAC compliant. I see, but I really, yeah. Oh, sorry. I, I was just gonna say, I really, really like that framing. And going off what you just said, do you see a world, right, where the most valuable builders are non-OFAC compliant, you know, given where institutional capital sits in the space? Is that a possibility? You know, does non-OFAC compliant building actually become the most valuable use of this? Look, the reality is that OFAC today is kind of a red herring because OFAC is just irrelevant to where any of the MEV is today in Ethereum, right? I, I'll tell you how much Ethereum is OFAC non-compliant is freaking zero, right? How often are the addresses that are sanctioned by OFAC transacting on Ethereum and trading on Uniswap and, you know, like never. This is just, a, this is just like a rounding error, right? This is mostly a philosophical and intellectual debate. It has really almost nothing to do with MEV extraction. So now the question of, are the people who are doing this, right? Like if you're a US citizen, uh, and you're incorporated in the U.S., and you want to decide, okay, am I going to be OFAC compliant or not? I can tell you what the answer is going to be, right? Because if you're not OFAC compliant and you're an American, you're, you're, you're going to a very dark cell very soon. So people who are Americans who are going to be doing this stuff are almost certainly going to be OFAC compliant by default. Um, but is this stuff going to globalize, internationalize? Probably. I, I don't see why it wouldn't. Um, and right now, like, you know, the, the, the actual builders are not, you know, they're not extracting a ton of money. So the, the validators are extracting a lot of money. The searchers are extracting a lot of money. But the auctioneers, which are basically what the builders are, um, mm -hmm. they're, they're kind of not really making a lot of money from this right now. All right, cool, guys. I want to I wanna pivot on that. So uh, I guess I got the answer. Guys, in the, in the chat uh, and on the comments, um, if you're not a subscriber, subscribe to the channel. And also, what I want you guys to do now is let me know if you like this fast, fast, all alpha, no macro kind of, of banter. Uh, just smash the like button if you do, just so we know. I want to quickly pivot to this because we can't ignore it anymore. And I know it's not like really a topic that VCs like to talk about. I know, I, I get it, I get it, I get it, I get it. We're not, we, you know, VCs don't really want to talk about Dogecoin, but it's had an amazing couple of days. So just quickly, let's just look at the, the numbers here. So in the, uh, it's gone up 50%. Uh, in the last couple of days. And that's of course on the news that Elon Musk has bought Twitter. 
He walked in with the kitchen sink. I think he made a, a huge statement with the kitchen sink. <laughs> walked in with the kitchen sink. A day later, uh, he has thrown out Parag. He's thrown out the uh, the finance the finance uh, dude. He's also thrown out the head of legal, who was the person um, who in who. Um, uh, was responsible for banning Donald Trump off the platform. He already, already, this is remember day one on the job. He only really got control of Twitter today, but he has already reinstated Kanye West's account. Uh, I mean, they do know that, that he is that, that, that they're friends. And I guess the question is now, he spoke a lot about Doge in, in the lead up to the buyout of Twitter. We know he's a Doge fan. We also got the court documents around Dogecoin around the buyout. And in those court documents, almost every single idea that he has involves somehow using Dogecoin, tipping in Dogecoin, staking Dogecoin to be able to send messages, using Dogecoin as the currency on Twitter. Now, I remind you of this. Elon has said that he wants Twitter to be more like WeChat, which is the one app where everything can happen. And the one feature that WeChat has that WhatsApp doesn't have and Telegram doesn't have and, and, and no one else has is payments. Because you can only create the super app if you have a payment system. That's the only way that the super app works. If you can't buy and sell goods like WeChat, then that's not a payment thing. So question, can we ignore Dogecoin? Can we afford to ignore Dogecoin? Do you think that there's something here? Um, and do you think that, that this little pump in Dogecoin is, 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 is validated? Or do you think that this, this is just another meme coin pumping because of Elon Musk? I'll even take a stab at it first if you guys don't want to touch it That's yet. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say, so in an, in an ordinary project, right? Like an ordinary crypto project has a set of builders who all contribute to something. They build a coin, they deploy a coin, you buy the coin, right? In this case, Dogecoin is not formally deployed by Musk, right? But ostensibly, given its pricing, Musk could be the largest single holder of Dogecoin, right? So Dogecoin could effectively be Musk project. Now, is it a good idea to buy into Musk project? I don't know, but you know, I think that you do have to frame it a little bit differently. Uh, even frankly, calling it Dogecoin anymore may even start to become a misnomer, right? Okay, I mean, investing in Musk projects up until now has been amazing. Boring Company has been amazing. SpaceX has been amazing. PayPal was amazing. Uh, uh, Tesla was beyond amazing. I think it's. A, I think backing anything that the richest man in the world is backing. Yeah, yeah, but this is not this is not new, right? Like we saw like him go on SNL and then you know it's been a 90 95% just steep drop ever since that SNL. So this is not the first time. I'm sure he's gonna try something. Um I think if the question is can you afford to ignore it? Yeah, you can definitely afford to ignore it. There's no way that in 20 years, if you don't have any Dogecoin, you know, you're gonna be broke and you're not gonna be part of the flying cars around and you're not gonna be able to buy anything. You can you can ignore it. That said, like, are we going to see some random pumps? Very likely, like they're going to announce some random stuff. But, you know, this is not new. You know, Reddit has done, used Dogecoin. There's been other social media platforms trying to use coins and money. And ultimately, like, if you're actually going to make a really good WeChat, you just have to use like USDC or something. You're not going to like be able to rely on like a speculative. Like it's going to have to be based on, on something a lot more concrete, I think. So, so I think I want to I agree with you. But I also think that up until now, all of Elon's ideas around Dogecoin never had a platform. So 
if you think about like, you know, he was talking about Dogecoin and then he let people buy merch, a Tesla merchandise using Dogecoin, but that's not like a mass platform. Now he has a, a mass platform toy with, I don't know how many users Twitter has, but hundreds of millions of users. A lot of, it, a lot of them quite tech savvy, a lot of them quite crypto savvy because uh, I think that crypto is one of the biggest communities on, on Twitter at the moment. Um, they have made huge advances when it comes to, to, to uh, uh, crypto. You, they're talking about now integrating NFTs so you can tweet NFTs at one another and you can buy uh, NFTs uh, like that. There's a, apparently a crypto wallet in development. I'm kind of thinking to myself, you know, hold on, it's probably not a bad idea to put one or two percent of your portfolio into Dogecoin now. And you know, this is coming from I've, I've been an anti-Dogecoin, no technology, bad tokenomics, blah blah blah. And I'm kind of going, hold on a second, maybe it's just worth putting one or two percent of my portfolio into Dogecoin. Hasib is a VC. Man, you do you, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> one or two percent of Dragonfly's capital and, and put it into Dogecoin. Um, yeah, my LPs would absolutely, they would murder me in my sleep if I were to put one or 2% of the fund of the Dogecoin. Um, so look, I mean, Dogecoin, uh, Dogecoin is a meme coin, right? It literally, it's in the friggin' name. Um, it can do like, I think maybe like 30 transactions per second. It can't do any smart contracts. It's just like basically Bitcoin, but a little bit faster. And, um, it's kind of, you know, it's, it's sort of like an abandoned baby that the entire world has thought it was a hilarious joke to adopt. And that's kind of, that's, that's it. There's really nothing else. Um, and so Elon thinks it's hilarious. Um, maybe it is hilarious in a kind of weird, messed up way. But um, no, Dogecoin is not going to become the currency of Twitter. It's not like, it, 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 it's not even that it won't, is that it can't. It has no function, like it can't do that. It can only do 30 transactions per second. How can you try to become WeChat Pay or Alipay on 30 transactions per second? It just doesn't Ron, work. Let me, do let me offer a... Do, do you know what I'm going to do to this clip? when one day it does become the, <laughs> you know what I'm going to do. I can't time. wait. I can't wait for the day. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to revel that day. Damn, what's so, up? Let, let me, let me offer a, a wild, uh, you know, counter argument here. And for the record, I own zero Dogecoin. I have never bought Dogecoin in my life. Um, what if there exists a world where Elon ends up uh, taking the entire ledger of Dogecoin, all those accounts, and he maps them into a new actual technologically viable chain, right? That's not impossible to imagine, okay? And so now we imagine Elon has Elon Bucks, okay? But he's used Doge as his launchpad. He's captured, like we talked about with Layer 1s earlier today, that entire community momentum, all of those monetizable audience dollars, right? And he has that, and he ports it into an actual tech chain. Is that something we can imagine happening? That's so, super fascinating. I, I love that you brought that up. It's actually like, it's a thought experiment I've had many times, especially with about Bitcoin, because, you know, Bitcoin does have this... Uh, problematic uh, security model for the long term. And, you know, when you think about the, the use of the actual, you know, who's the owners and what would have been the inputs outputs, there is a way to kind of, it's sort of like going from earth to Mars, you know, you, you, you kind of take the people and you just move them to a different planet. And what you're describing is exactly that. And um, I actually have seen on Twitter, some people talking about like, uh, they're gonna put Dogecoin onto proof of stake and, and there'll be a staking yield. There's Doge Chain. There's Doge Chain, which is a side chain on Matic Polygon, I think. And that is, I think, exactly you can pay your fees using Dogecoin, which is I think that that's the that's the angle. Um I think it's actually I think it's actually been quite a good performing chain relative to the market. Let me just call up the 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 market cap, yeah. Uh so it is a two billion fully diluted valuation chain with a with a with a sixty-three billion dollar market cap. 
Yeah, and I think okay, so it's very feet. low flow. Yeah, very low flow. So it's I mean it's right now it's still in price manipulation stage if you want to call it that. Where you know there's not it, it's it's illiquid, but um it, it is a two billion dollar fully diluted valuation. Yeah. I, I, I've seen that they might actually move the actual Dogecoin onto proof of stake, like in mid November. I don't know if any of this is true, but um, you know theoretically they can they can push this to a certain point. Like I don't think they can make this national used money, but they, they can push it a lot further, you know, but it, it is a little bit of a fool me once, fool me twice. You know, it's we've seen the pump. We've seen it retrace. A lot of people have lost money. And when you look at community, the main thing that creates a community is like they make money together. And, you know, on the way up, it makes a lot of sense. Like everyone just made like 100x on, on Dogecoin. And now there's a lot of people who bought it 50, 60 cents. Are, is that community like that, you know, still happy about about their purchase and about about I don't know. We'll, we'll have to see. Okay, let's let's pivot a little bit. Let's talk about GMX. Let's talk about all these options, these futures and options, decentralized exchanges. GMX has had an amazing run. Um, I think it's been one of the best performing tokens out there. It is certainly one of the highest fee generating tokens out there. Uh, this week we saw a fork of GMX. Um, let me just try and find it. There was a fork of GMX. I don't want to get the name wrong. It was um, Carl. What is it called? Are you talking about mycelium? Uh, no, it wasn't mycelium. There was a fork that was forked, and it, it did phenomenally well. I'll, I'll, I'll think of, I'll think of the name. What is your, your, and and, and you got Gains Network, which is another one of these these things, and and it seems like there's a huge narrative around these decentralized futures exchanges, and then the next step, kind of like decentralized options, which are are coming out there. We saw a massive pump this week on on Hedgeek and and a whole lot of other ones. How bullish are you guys about this narrative? Is it still a narrative that you guys would be investing in, or are we catching the end of a retail pump? So I can, I can. Okay, yeah, yeah, sure, I can start here. So, um, yeah, so decentralized derivatives—they've uh, been one of the holy grails of DeFi for a very long time. Uh, if you look at, if you look in CeFi, uh, you know, basically up till 2017, derivatives were very tiny. It was basically almost all spot-driven market. And then in 2018, you got finally got to the point that basically derivatives flipped spot. And derivatives ever since 2018 have been the majority of how crypto gets traded. And so the, the assumption has always been, okay, well, DeFi started with spot, right? It started with Ether Delta and then Uniswap. And then, you know, eventually uh, you should get the same transition in DeFi, right? Like shouldn't DeFi eventually also become the same market structure as every other mature market that we know of where derivatives massively outweigh spot. Um, and today in DeFi, that is not happening. It's been, you know, however many years now, and we're not seeing this transition from spot to derivatives. Why not? Why isn't it happening? Um, so now if, if you look in, in CFI derivatives, uh, futures or perpetuals are much larger than options. Options are tiny in, in, mm. in crypto, uh, crypto derivatives. And there's also, also been a second question, like why is that true? Because almost every single mature asset class, options are massive. Options are a very, very large portion of the market. In crypto, they're tiny. They're really, really tiny part of the overall market. And so that's another mystery. Why is it that uh, now options have been growing as a percentage of the overall market for derivatives, but they're still very small. And the question is like, why are they converging? Why doesn't crypto look like almost every other asset class? For options in particular, one of the reasons why this is the case is that options are generally used as a hedging instrument. And for most commodities in the world, right, let's say like grains or oil, there are a lot of natural hedgers. There are people who want to hedge their exposure because they're running a capital intensive business and they want to control their, their risk, right? Um, there's almost nobody for whom that's true in crypto. 
there are no people who have crypto as a part of their business except for miners, right? Miners need to hedge. Uh, but other than miners who are at this point a fairly small part of the overall kind of constellation of who's using the stuff, um, who actually need, who actually have organic hedging needs. And so as a result, options are small. So if you're talking about decentralized options in a world where decentralized derivatives are already not taking the same transition they've taken in CeFi quite yet, uh, you basically got a situation where you've got a small subset of a small subset of a market. Now we're investors into open, which is today the largest options protocol on Ethereum. Um, and it, it, in the long run, I am bullish on actually both those trends. I'm bullish on one, the trend of uh, DeFi migrating towards derivatives the same way that CeFi has. And second, I'm also bullish on options increasing and growing as a portion of the overall crypto market. But the reality is that it's gonna take time and no single startup can force that transition to happen. It has to happen kind of organically in the broader set of demands and also in the technology. One of the reasons why derivatives is hard is that spot is dead simple. Spot okay. is just you list two tokens and they trade against each other and it's fine, right? With derivatives, you need oracles. You need oracles, you need them in real time. You generally need some kind of, um, you know, th there's more risks when you're trading derivatives, especially when you're trading derivatives with leverage. Because if you're trading unleveraged derivatives, like why are you doing that? Like what's the, what's yeah. the advantage of trading spot? And so if you have leverage, you need fast updates, you need oracles, you need deleveraging, you need on-chain liquidity. You need a lot of things to be perfectly right that you don't need for spot. And that's one of the reasons why, going back to our previous conversation, why scalability is so important. Without scalability, you don't get any of this stuff. And that's why derivatives took much longer to arrive on chain than spot did. So right now, if you were investing, what percentage of your investment would you put into options? And what percentage would you put into futures? When I say, so the options market versus the 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 perpetual so to speak so why i say that is because if you look at a at a bet like a gns or if you look at a bet like a um a, a gmx gns that's perpetuals the next part of it is options which is things like uh i don't know hegic um uh what's the the other options one that we always talk about um it'll come to ribbon. me in a second say again ribbon no, it's not ribbon. It's uh, it's the one that was Tetranode was very highly involved in it. Um, the OPEX, DOPEX, DOPEX, the DOPEX. Dopex. There you go, DOPEX, and, and a couple of others. So, question is like, how would you break down your portfolio? Because I think we all agree that in every market in the world, derivatives are are are, are much bigger than the underlying spot. I think I see you've brought up a very 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 interesting point in terms of um, uh, the fact that right now there are no natural hedges in the market. But I think as the market matures and we have multiple more use cases, we will get much more, many more hedges in, into the market. And so the question is, you know, options, futures, what percentage of your portfolio would you be putting into it? What do you guys want to take this? Uh, I mean, <laughs> um, you know, options is going to grow. I think partly one of the reasons, another reason, just to add to the reasons why it hasn't grown, maybe is because crypto is so volatile that if you want, like, you know, parabolic exponential returns, you can just go long, you know, go long 10 exit. You don't need to buy like a call option out of the money and like wait for it to move. Eventually that volatility can die down. And then like, actually, I think one of the reasons we're seeing options be like such a larger part of the market is because volatility has come down. And so people are more looking at like uh, playing volatility instead of, you know, Bitcoin has become a 20K stable coin right now. Um, so like, you know, there, there's less like leverage betting on, on Bitcoin itself. Um, when it comes to GMX and like these things, I think it's interesting. We have seen things um, take that code and replicate it. And it's, it reminds me a lot of uh, poker days and as he maybe remembers as well. But you have kind of like skins, which might have the same type of technology. 
and then it just becomes a different name and a different like color, but it's it's really like the same site. And we're seeing that with some of these like GMX and the copycats. And what you start to realize is like what's actually valuable is not so much the technology, but it's more like getting users and whoever can kind of create a community of users and you can incentivize them with your tokens. So like mycelium is you know copied it and then the, they just have a different approach towards like getting the community around it. Um, and also they're doxxed as opposed to like GMX, which, you know, creates a little bit of like uncertainty in terms of like rug pulling. Um, and I think, you know, it, it's not going to be huge. Like, like Hasib said, you need oracles. So ultimately the size of this market can't be larger than the underlying thing that the oracle is pointing to. And that's what we've seen with all these hacks and Mango and all these like hundreds of uh, hacks that are going on because the oracle ends up being smaller you know, you can move the price around on the on the Binance or on the centralized exchanges. You can just move it around, and then you can trade against the users who have staked uh, LP'd, and then you can just rinse them. So it can't get that big. I, I just have to say, I do yeah. think that the one the one interesting component around these, and at a relatively high level, uh, is that you know this idea of revenue back to the token, uh, whether it's by buybacks or dividends or however these models are running it. It seems to be something that 2022 and 2023 are starting to tilt towards as opposed to 2021, where we saw utility tokens, governance tokens, which had, you know, flimsy value backing. And I think GMX here, obviously sitting in that that first bucket where it's, you know, there is some sort of value going back to the token in some hard way. I think that's a different uh, phenomenon for retail to start to actually grapple with. Yeah. All right, guys. Uh, you know, in fact, Sam, I'm going to ask you one question. It's been, it's been on my mind and I know we're running out of time, but I have to ask you one question. So... Right now, the metaverse is a really shit experience. Like, if you look at the current metaverse products that are here, you've got Decentraland, you've got Sandbox, shit experience. I think Mark Zuckerberg's efforts and the 10 to $15 billion that he spent um, uh, also has been criticized uh, to be a shit experience um, by people in the know. What, what, is, there a, is there a metaverse play at the moment that you would take that you would feel comfortable to say this one is really different it's a good experience and it's actually going to probably get some kind of traction categorically no uh to date almost every single metaverse experience that we've seen reminds me more of second life from the early 2000s than anything else that i've seen uh, I think that people have badly confused the word metaverse to mean random graphical interface where you walk into it with a couple of people. And that's that's really not the end game here, right? The end game is we're trying to build a purely digital economy where people can go in and interact with the people. There's a lot of secondary effects from that. You have trading, fungible items, et cetera. And I think to date, almost every metaverse that we've seen pop up, it's, it's really just been, you know, uh, it's like a bad Minecraft server, frankly. So nothing that you'd put your money on right now to say, you know, these guys could actually, because I really want to invest in the metaverse because I really yeah. believe in the concept of the metaverse. I really love no, it, but I just run, can't find to invest in. It's tough. And, and, you know, for people like me, I feel like I'm losing my mind because the metaverse to me is like, it's the single most important identity structure that will rise over the next couple of decades, right? Like undeniably, the world is going digital. More and more of everything that we do will be digital. We'll work digitally, we'll trade digitally, we'll live digitally, et cetera. But the problem is, is that right now, people's visions for it are very limited. It seems like most of the builders that I'm seeing are imagining, you know, like Zoom, but you can walk around. And it's that's not it, right? Like we have to think bigger and we have to work together here to really pull something that's a much larger, economic and virtual experience together can mark zuckerberg pull it off 
so unfortunately, I do think that Mark Zuckerberg probably will pull off some variant of it, right? Whether or not, however we feel about it, he will force something to happen. Um, do I think it will be the full decentralized metaverse? No, I think that there will ultimately be a competitor, uh, whether it's an agglomerate of smaller studios that kind of band together, uh, you know, sort of supported by decentralized commerce. Um, but I, I do think ultimately we split. We have something that looks like Facebook, and then we have something that looks like, um, you know, frankly, the early days of Ethereum, but you know, with prettier pictures and you can walk around inside of it. Any guys, anything to add to that? Have you guys seen a good metaverse play before we let you guys go? I haven't seen much, but I, I would say, um, I, I think we were talking earlier, um, you know, Rand, you were saying how you, you were very bearish on Facebook engineers, which I, 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 was, I would take issue with, but put that in, putting that aside, I do agree with you that Facebook does not have the DNA to build a metaverse. And you can see that with, with Horizon Worlds, which is the metaverse thing that, that they actually spun up, which looks like absolute dog shit. And Horizon Worlds, I, I think when they initially launched and there was all this excitement around, oh my God, the metaverse is coming and everyone started learning what the term metaverse means. And then suddenly people started writing books about the metaverse. Um, I think at that time, Horizon Worlds had 650K uh, active users and they're now down to 200. So this thing is not working. It sucks. It's a pretty awful experience. It's not even one of the best things you can do on Oculus. It, it's, just, it's, just, it's just awful. And I think uh, there's a lot of magical thinking around what big tech companies can do. Like the reality is a big tech company does not have magical powers to make their products be good. They can try, uh, but of course there are a lot of things that Facebook launches, that Google launches, that Apple launches that don't work. They, they, they try, they get some small user base. Like there's always some distribution of people who just use every product that you launch, but they don't end up growing organically and becoming world scale products. And so I think it's very likely that look, the people who build the metaverse are probably going to be people who are much more steeped in games and virtual worlds than Facebook is. Facebook is a social media company. They don't have the, and look, one thing Facebook can do very well is they can build world scale systems because that's literally what they do. They have one of the most used products in the world with multi-billion users for every single one of their products. So if it comes to scale, if it comes to technology, absolutely they are one of the world-class experts in that, but that's not what it takes to build a metaverse, right? The problem with the metaverse is not that 4 billion people are gonna use it, it's that even for the 100,000 people who are going to use it, it doesn't just suck and looks awful and feels awful and has no soul. And that's what Horizon Worlds feels like right now to me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. the, only, the only exciting idea, and it's more of an idea, is kind of what Punk6539 has been uh, doing. Um, you know, he, he's anonymous, but he has a lot of vision. He's a very uh, visionary thinker. I don't think a lot of people respect his, his uh, visions that he shared. And Right now, for example, he's doing this like collaboration with the uh, University of Nicosia to do like a fully, you know, Web3 online course that's in the metaverse that they've created. And I've talked to people who have participated and they quite like the experience of, of taking classes in, in this like uh, metaverse. Um, so if, if we believe that this is kind of like the split that we'll have and like we'll have like a Facebook and then we'll have maybe like the, you know, crypto anon vision. Uh, then that's fine. That that'll be great. I hope I hope they can do it. Alrighty, guys. Listen, it's time time to go. Much love. You guys have been amazing. We've got a lot of alpha. Guys, let us know in the comments if you love this kind of format. If you do, just smash the like button. Asib, Sam, Jordi, thank you so 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 much. Much love from the fam. See you guys soon. Alrighty, that's our banter panel. Let me just say goodbye to them. And then banter fam, you guys just stay on. There we go. Alrighty, so before I let you guys go, just another quick reminder that, just move this down here. 
first of all, let's quickly look at the markets. Just quickly, let's let's quickly just scan the markets and see if we missed anything while all this alpha was going. So Bitcoin, 20,500. NASDAQ is cooking with gas even after Amazon's terrible results yesterday. Amazon, terrible results. Facebook, terrible results. The market is firing today up 3.4%. That is absolutely amazing. Uh, Apple, what happened with Apple? Oh, no, no. Uh, then there is, let's quickly look at the Dixie. Dixie is still at, at 111. So it's, I mean, something's going on here. We must actually find out what's going on here. I've been, I've been online. So yeah. Uh, then lastly, 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 just remember that uh, NordVPN are the sponsor of the show. Remember, if you want to support the guys uh, and we need their support because they help us bring these kind of shows, just go and protect your crypto and get a VPN from the best VPN provider in crypto, which is NordVPN. And you can do that for $3 a month. And then lastly, 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 lastly. I did take a trade during the show. Oh, I didn't. took a trade during the show. Wow, was, yeah, my eyes were moving. People are asking. I'm back in my trades. I've got near and GMX positions open just because I see the markets turning bullish. So I'm back. Right now, I am 34th with 66.76%. Carl, how are you doing, bro? I'm managing the trade. I'm back. 65. Are you, are you 25th position? Yeah. No way. Show your screen. No, no. Show your screen, bro. Show your screen, Carl Dupes. Oh my goodness, Carl Dupes is back in the game. Dupesie is back in the what was what was your trade, Carl? Um I took a Cardano long. You took a Cardano long. I know you're still in the in the long. I closed. You closed. DJ. Uh, I think I'm gonna pay, play it patiently because it's a it's a long, it's a long competition. By the way, by the way, if you want to join, if you want to join, you can join the BitKit or Bybit competition. There are links below. All you do is you click here. By the way, by the way, if you want to you, join, I'm so happy that you're back in the game, Carl Dupes. But we thought we'd lost you, bro. Like we lost Fred. Uh, you just click on here to join the buy bit. Here to join the BitGet. You can win over $150,000 in prizes. We go until the end of November because it's a marathon, not a sprint. With that, I will see you guys again on the weekend if anything happens. Otherwise, I'll see you guys again on Monday. Sheldino Tentino is not here next week because he's finishing crypto school, sniper school. Let me tell you, I saw some stuff from us school holy moly bro. holy moly you know when sheldon is in his happy place when sheldon is teaching bro it's 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 unbelievable it's like un, un, unbelievable when sheldon's teaching and i can't wait to, to launch it so i'll see you guys again on monday until then do me a favor just smash the like button one more time uh just don't unlike so smash the like button one more time we'll see you guys again on monday until then have fun trade well and look after yourselves my friends Carl's back in the game! Is